0: Father, this is your word, and in many ways, uh, your word to us this morning is a great offense to us. Uh, And so, Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit would move uh, deeply in our hearts uh, to pause us in our offense or dismissing of your word. And Father, we ask that uh, the Holy Spirit would bring your word very deep into our hearts, the center of whom we are, that we might, Father, understand and be gripped by the gospel, this almost unimaginable good news that you offer to people like us. And all this we ask in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. So uh, in morning prayer, we get to begin the sermon with the sound of children singing, which is sort of an interesting thing. The, um, I don't know how much of you, uh, how many of you paid attention to, uh, Matt when he was, uh, opening, uh, when he was reading the text at the beginning of the service, but if you were listening, it's a very, very offensive text. It's a text of the Bible that says you're all dead, you're by nature children of wrath, by nature you follow, uh, hostile spiritual forces, and you follow a spirit of rebellion, and it's a very, very hard text. A text that people often, uh, turn away from. And I didn't. Uh, I don't like offending people. I'm very Canadian, so I don't like offending people. Uh, but one of the things we do here in this church is we preach through the Bible. We preach through whole books of the Bible, and we don't try to hide things or avoid things or pretend that certain things aren't here. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk towards this problem. And, and what you have to understand is that this is, in a sense, a red pill and a blue pill moment for each of us. Uh, many of you instantly get the analogy, there's a famous movie from some 20 years ago or whatever called The Matrix, uh, and in it, there's uh, early on in the movie, there's this mo- moment where a man named Morpheus speaks to a man named Neo, and he holds out his hands, and he said, there's a re- red pill and a blue pill. Uh, the choice is yours. Uh, if you take the blue pill, you just continue to live your life the way it is right now, and you just live thinking the things that are thought and going away as the things go. But if you take the red pill, if you take the red pill, you'll know the truth and your life will be completely changed. And as those of us know, this isn't a spoiler or anything like that in the movie for those who haven't actually seen it. Uh, The red pill reveals a very, very harsh and uncomfortable truth that everybody in the world is living a delusion. They're in fact, in real life, they're hooked up to a machine, and uh, basically a world of machines is sucking the energy out of them to fuel the machines and, uh, and to stop human beings from disconnecting themselves to the machines. They basically work in the brains of human beings to create an illusory world where they're all happy and going about and free. And uh, Neo in the movie chooses the red pill, not the blue pill. He chooses the pill that's going to be uncomfortable, uh, but it's true. And that's what the Bible is doing for us here today. The last two weeks, as we've been looking through chapter one, uh, it's told us un- this spectacular promises and truths about what it means to be in Christ. And now, the text is going to take a step back and says, I want you to understand what's going on, what's really going on, what the choice is, what the before story is before these wonderful promises. And that's what we're going to look at right now. So, uh, here's how we begin. We're going to, if you uh, have your Bibles, you can follow along. Uh, some, and I'll also have the text up there on the screen. Uh, in a couple of cases, you'll notice um, that the translation, I'm basically using the ESV a couple of times. There's going to be a slight difference in some of the wording, and that's just uh, you can thank a man whose last name is Ba, uh, B A U G H, who's a Greek scholar. And uh, sometimes I've changed it to be a little bit less grammatical, uh, but to actually bring home the underlying language better. And uh, here's how the text begins. And you were dead in the transgressions and sins in which you once walked. Remember, this is a red pill moment. And you were dead in the transgressions and sins in which you once walked. Think if you're using the ESV, it says uh, uh, trespasses. Uh, the, the word transgressions means uh, that there's a sense of the rightness of the world uh, and there's uh, uh, the sense of moral laws and rightness of the world and that at different times in your life, you specifically go against what you know is the right thing to do. You fail to do the, the good that you should um, You know, you, uh, or you, you do something that you know is wrong uh, and that's this idea behind transgression. It's uh, consciously going against things which you know are right. And sins is a more personal word, uh, in a sense, getting right in God's face or or saying something to God about how you're going to turn your back on him. You you don't like him. You don't want him present. It's a a very God-centered word. But here's the thing. The word dead actually means dead. In fact, uh, here's my point connected with it. By nature, you are dead. That's what the Bible is saying. By nature, you are dead. Now, um, the things which are going on in these first three verses of the text, it on one it deeply offends, especially contemporary Canadians, where we believe that fundamentally we're good, and um, we don't like to think about death or talk about death or think about death's finality. We like to uh, amuse ourselves and think about anything other than death. Um, and uh, but this text. When it says dead, it really means if you go to a funeral home and you see the bodies in the caskets, that's us. And that's a bit of a shocking thing to say about human beings. Now, actually, interestingly enough, it's actually empirically true. If you think about it for a second, it's actually empirically true. Um, From the moment that you're conceived in your mother's womb, when you become a zygote... If I'm pronouncing that word correctly. From that moment, and you become in a sense you, in a real sense, you become you at that moment. Uh your DNA is all there. The 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 basic things as to whether you'll have certain illnesses, whether like I, I have my mother's father's hairline, for instance. <laughs> uh you know, I have if you know I have like a I have a true nose. Uh I mean that's it's, it's real nose. Uh My mother's maiden name was True, T R E W. I have a true nose. I have the same type of nose as my grand, my mother's dad. All those things are sort of programmed into you right from the moment you become a zygote. But you know what else is also true from the moment you become a zygote? You'll die. You'll die. Like, isn't that true? That's empirically true. You know, death isn't something that you're going to live forever, live forever, live forever. Dang, you made a mistake. You know, it's not like you live forever, live forever, live forever, live forever, live forever, you know, you eat the wrong food, now you're going to die. No, from the moment you're as I got, the moment you become you, you're also going to die. It's actually empirically true. There's a, you might notice that there's a, three dozen roses at the front of the church, and they're here today as a, as a symbol or as a sort of an illustration After the service, I invite uh, every adult in the room who wants one to take a rose. You bring it home. It's just our gift to you this morning. But here's the thing. This, in a sense, is a symbol and a metaphor, an image of what every human being here is in the room. This rose is beautiful, isn't it? I mean, many of us, some of us are as beautiful as the rose. All of us wish we could be as beautiful as the rose. (laughs) But this rose is a cut flower. It's a cut flower. And the biblical message is is that we were designed to be connected to God forever. But we've separated ourselves from God. We've, in a sense, cut ourselves off from the ground, from the source of nutrients, from ongoing life. And every human being that's born is born a cut rose And um, it must be true because I looked it up on the Internet. Um, But once that rose is cut, you can't do anything. Like it's it's doomed. You can't reconnect it to a plant so that it'll live because it's a cut plant. And that's what the Bible is saying here. We are a cut flower. It gets worse. (laughs) Look at the next text. It's the uh, second part of verse 2, chapter 2. So we began with chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in the transgressions and sins in which you once walked. Now the rest of the verse 2 goes like this. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And um, it's saying something else. It's saying now, uh, it's getting even deeper into our problem. By nature... You love acts of rebellion against the living God. See, that's, that's what the text is trying to say. Um, the first analogy is that we're all walking a life, and the natural, the, the, a sense, the natural way we're bent is to, in a sense, be on the same side as any human being or any spiritual being that also rebels against God and desires to be a God themselves and chart their own path and their own way forward. And so this image of the ruler of the spirit of the, of the air the, uh, uh, is this, this image of, uh, of demons, of hostile spiritual forces. And then the other one isn't a spirit thing. It's, a, it's saying that, in fact, if we think about it, human life is organized, not always in rebellion against God, but there's always a bit of a flavor of it against the presence of the living God. And that that's, in a sense, what animates social life and social institutions, that there's always just something in there which likes to be in rebellion against God, and that's the side that we naturally side with as human beings. Once again, this is actually offensive to us because we believe that we're basically good, but once again, it's actually empirically true. If you think about it for a second, it's empirically true. I've used this analogy before, Uh, some of you might remember it, but when you watch a movie, or you read a story, and in the movie or in the story, it looks as if there's a perfect society, a perfect place, a utopia. What do we all instantly know? At root, there's something evil. That's what we all know. It's just just obvious. Nobody goes and says, Oh, look at that, this is a portrayal of a perfect society, a perfect world. No, no. We know there's something going on. We know there's some powerful force manipulating people. We know that somehow or another they might be food. We know that something else is going on. We instinctively both long for utopias and and, and often many people are suckers for them. But at the same time, when we see it very plainly put forward, we know, we know, we know, we know, we know that there's something not right going on there. See, it's, it's a very interesting thing. That in this text, on one hand, when we think about it and reflect upon it, it offends us. On the other hand, if we actually think about it a bit more, we realize that what offends us is that which is actually empirically known to be true, and it, it gets it gets worse. <laughs> Look at verse three, chapter two, verse three. Um, so it just said how we follow the basically the devil, and we follow up that, and we naturally are aligned with the spirit that is work in society. In verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions, or another way to put it would be lusts, of our flesh. That doesn't mean our body. It means that there's a part of us that likes to rebel against God, (laughs) carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of the human race. By nature, children of wrath like the rest of the human race. Of the human race, you know. Once again, this is something which is empirically true. If we think about it, can you just imagine for a second if uh, one of your friends or one of your ne- uh, one of your nephews or, or your own child had a baby, and as they're holding the baby and looking at it, and if they were to say to you, Do "You know," do you think this will be the first child that never does anything wrong in their entire life? I think this is the child. I think this child, just like my previous one, will never, ever, 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 ever do anything wrong. And if you watch that person say that, you'd think they were joking. If it became obvious that they were serious, you'd go, (laughs) that's what you do, isn't it? Oh, good grief. (laughs) How stupid is this person? How... Isn't that what we all do? Like, empirically, that's what we do. Nobody believes that, even though we also at the same time believe that we're all basically fundamentally good. Like, why is it that that goes on within us? Why are we offended by the word of God? You see, by nature, do I have the right thing? Here's my my third point. By nature, with middle finger raised at him, you stay the course away from the living God. I tried to pick a very graphic image. (laughs) This description covers the religious and the irreligious. It covers the spiritual and those who want to have nothing to do with spirituality. It covers me and you. It covers Bill Gates, and it covers the most broken street person that you could ever meet. And why does the text say wrath, but I don't use wrath in my text? Well, if you think about it for a second... Imagine that you did come across somebody that they're really a really great person. Let's say you, 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 you grew up with somebody and, uh, okay, your mom wasn't very good. I don't know, your mom was terrible. And, uh, this person's mom was fantastic. Like, just fantastic. You know, she made cookies, she made your lunch, she was a good listener, she was always kind, she always gave you good advice, she was all, she was just great. In fact, you and all your friends would say, I wish that mom, I wish your mom was my mom. <laughs> like, you have such a great mom. But then if you have this person who, you know, humanly speaking, is just a spectacular mom, but all of the time, your friend, we'll call him Bob, every time Bob is at his mom's, where his mom wants to come and talk to, to Bob, Bob yell, you know, Bob it turns his back on her. He hangs up on her. He never answers her texts. Uh, when she starts to speak to him or give him a gift, he rolls his eyes. He just is just visually shows that he doesn't want to have anything to do with her. That he doesn't like her. That he that he hates her. That he just wants to live his own life and have her nowhere. And and everybody else, all of Bob's friends, is saying, "Your mom is great. Like she just she just wants to. She's just great. Like what's what's going on? Why are you always giving her the finger? The finger. And then if finally, the, the mom says, gets mad at at, at Bob. And then Bob goes around everywhere. Why on earth is my mom mad at me? That's why I don't like my mom. She's always getting mad at me. And what will you say to Bob? You'll say, but Bob, like your mom's unbelievably patient with you. You're basically giving her the finger all the time. And she turns the other cheek. Why are you surprised that she's mad at you? That's what's going on in the text. God is unfailingly good. He's unfailingly kind. He's unfailingly loving, unfailingly merciful, and we don't want him in our lives unless we're stuck. And then we'd like him to be like a genie that we rub the bottle, we make our wish, he fixes the problem, then he goes back in the bottle and lets me live my own life on my terms. And whether that is saying the rosary and going to church, whether it's uh, doing yoga, you know, whether it's just singing praise courses or something like that just because it's something spiritual that we happen to like, whether it's drinking Jack Daniels, whatever it is, it can have a religious form and an irreligious form. It can have a secular form and a spiritual form. But bottom line is what we don't want is we want what we want when we want it in the way that we want it. And we don't want God getting in there, the true and living God messing things up. Thank you very much finger extended, back to him. That is what we are by nature. It is what we are by nature. This is the red pill. Religion or spirituality that says, you just follow these rules and then God will uh, God will be your God and he'll accept you. How does that work? Well, it works exactly the same as going into the funeral home and speaking to all the bodies in the caskets and say, just start improving your diet and you will live longer. How does that work? It doesn't work at all. This is very, 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 very tough and bad news. It's very countercultural bad news, but I would suggest it's the red pill. It's the red pill. But it reveals to us that we need a true and greater Morpheus. We need a true and greater Neo. It reveals to us that you are not the hero that you have been waiting for. You are not the hero the world has been waiting for. There is nothing in this world that is the hero that you have been waiting for. This is me. This is us. But this very, very stark bad news is a way to introduce spectacular good news. Look at how the very next verse begins. Notice how it begins with the word, but it's going to tell us that there is a true and greater hero, that there is, in fact, a longing and a dream made flesh. Let's read it. But God, this is where my translation is just going to be a little bit different to bring out the original force of the original language, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. This is verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, co-made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved and co-raised us with him and co-seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 4 again. Verse 4 goes, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, here's the beginning of the good news. God is rich in mercy, and he's rich in love. Um, Our hope doesn't flow from anything within ourselves or anything within our world. Our hope has to come from God being rich in mercy and rich in love. Our hope comes in a sense from outside of the world, but present in the world. There might be some of you here this morning who are feeling deeply unloved. What this Bible text is telling you, this isn't just me having a Maya Angelou moment. What the text is telling you is there has never been a time in your life that you have been unloved. Never. And if you're sitting here right now feeling unloved, you are not unloved. There is a God who does exist who right now loves you and has always loved you, and whatever good news is going to emerge is going to originate out of God who really does exist, the living God, the true and living God, it is going to come not out of the fact that you were able to to wink or or accomplish something or, or learn how to say the rosary or learn how to be good or learn how to do yoga or learn how to do or you know. Do all the Islamic prayers or or, or just, just be very successful in life. Whatever hope you have is not going to emerge out of anything you do or anything you can accomplish. It's going to emerge out of God Himself being unfailingly loving and unfailingly merciful. That is where hope is going to emerge out of. But you might say, But how can he help a cut flower? How can he help a cut rose? Look at what he says in verse 5 and 6. Look at what he says there again. Remember, he loves us. He loves us not when we've accomplished things, but he loves us, verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions. And what does he do? He co-made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And co-raised us with him and co-seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Co-made, co-raised, co-seated. Here's what the text is trying to bring out. The living God united you to Jesus, and in him you have been co-made alive, co-raised, and co-seated in the highest heaven. You see, what happens is Jesus is described as Emmanuel, as God with us. God, the Son of God, sets aside his glory and his splendor and his divine prerogatives and appearance as God. And remaining God comes and is born amongst us and lives amongst us. We have a hard time thinking about that. Just think a little bit more about being a Zygod. Remember, I told you that if you see me, you're seeing my grandfather's nose. You're seeing a true nose. <laughs> see my hairline? That's my grandfather's hairline. <laughs> you know, I have asthma. That's my mom's asthma. <laughs> you know, my eyesight didn't get that from my mom. Got that from my dad. You know, you can go on. Then there's other things that don't. You, people wonder where and if they come from. That's what happens when you just, you know, bang all those things together—the DNA of two people into a. Into a blender, but 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 he, here's the point. If you went and saw a baby picture of me at one, you might say, "Look at that! That's George." I can look at that. I can see his nose is cuter then, but I, that's George. I can tell from his eyes just the way he looks, right? But you look at a zygote. If there was able to go back in time and there was able to be a camera that could take a picture of you as a zygote, you don't look like that at all. Zygots don't have noses. <laughs> But everything that makes you you is right there in that second, that moment when you become a zygote, when you become you. Doesn't look like you, doesn't have your power, doesn't have your intellect, doesn't have your charm, doesn't have your wit, but it's you. With nothing left, it's all. It's you. And if we understand that as a human level, then we understand that God does something, the very same thing with his son, that God, the son of God, sets aside his divine prerogatives, his appearance as God, but remaining still by nature, God takes into himself our human nature and lives and walks amongst us. And he lives a life where he is not in rebellion against God. He is not in separation from God. He is in complete harmony and obedience to God, in love of God and in love of us, he came and dwelt among us out of love, he dwelt among us. And in time and in history, he is betrayed, he is condemned, and he dies upon the cross, and there is a charge put about him as he dies on the cross. And his death upon the cross happens in history, just as he spends three days in the grave, and then on the third day, the grave is empty, the body is gone, he is risen, He has defeated death, and he appears to prove that he is physically alive and has defeated death in a wide range of resurrection appearances over 40 days in many different locations to very, very many different people, privately in groups, different locations. He is alive. But that death upon the cross happened in history. But because he is not just the man, Jesus Christ, but also God, the Son of God, made flesh, His death upon the cross is not just something that happens in time, but something that happens outside of time, in eternity. Outside of time, which means it can be present and available at any time to any person. And what this text is saying so powerfully is this. God, by the Holy Spirit, moves and works in you, We'll see this in a moment by which you come to realize that God the Father is calling to you in your state of rebellion and calling to you in your state of death and saying, come to me, I long to have you as mine. And as you, with the help of the Holy Spirit, say, yes, Jesus, be my Savior and Lord. What actually happens is is as if God, the Son of God, Jesus, who has died upon the cross to take your place, he is identified so completely and utterly with He, uh, and he's, uh, He is your substitute. He is your act of exchange, and He comes and He unites with you, with you. And so, by this profound act of identification, substitution, and exchange, that both happen in history, but because He is God, the Son of God is also outside of history. That even though I live nineteen hundred. Uh, 22,000 some years after he died and rose from the dead, but because it's outside of time, when I put my faith and trust in Jesus, God, Jesus embraces me and unites with me so that on the cross, he died with me and I died with him. And on Easter Sunday, he is still so united with me and is so united with you that he rose from the dead and you rose from the dead. And just as he has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, so are you. Because you are united with him. Profound act, miracle that only God can do. And he did it for you and for me. all grace. All grace. This image of this seated, in a sense that's already true, but in another sense it's not true. I live in the already not yet, because obviously I'm not sitting there right now. But I wonder, just 15 years ago, I, I tried to do the math, 15 years ago there was a, a man that Louise and I knew, and he wanted to do a fundraiser at the National Arts Center. And this is 15 years ago. We had a $500 a seat, $500 a plate meal. $500 15 years ago. I don't know what that is. Like, what's that like now? $2,000? dollars be like going to a $2,000 a plate meal today. Let me just tell you, Louise and I don't normally go to meals like that. In fact, we would never go to a meal like that. We wouldn't spend the money. We don't have the money. But this fellow, we'll call him Bob, he said, I'd like you to come to this. And we were actually a bit nervous because, I don't know, like... How exactly, like, we just think, we don't hang out with a crowd like that. Like, how do you hold the wine glass? How do you do this? How do you do that? We don't really have the clothes for it. We got some clothes, not nearly at their level, or anything like that. We go to this. But here's the thing, we go there, we know nobody. We don't know people who go to $2,000 plate meals. Unless one of you folks go to them and I just don't realize you go to meals like that, then I guess I do know somebody. It would have been a bit of a shock, you know. Almost as big of a shock as the first time I, go to, I ever went to jail. The very first time I ever went to jail to visit somebody, to my shock and another person's was another person from my church. <laughs> he was really shocked when I walked in the door. And I was pretty shocked to see him. And I would be almost as shocked if I walked into a $2,000 plate meal and one of you were there. I'd go, wow. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about the co-seated, right? Bob paid for the the plates. Bob paid for Louise and me. He gave us the tickets. And what's more, he also said, don't worry about where you're sitting. You're sitting at the head table with me. We didn't have to find our seat. And we went into that reception, what did we know? We'd be sitting with shall'll say his name. He's with the Lord. We were sitting with Tom as his guests at the head table. United with Christ. that is you. That is what awaits you when you die. And it's no longer the already, not yet. It is the already. You feel unloved? You feel no hope? You feel rejected? Listen to what God says. Listen to what the text of Scripture continues to teach. Look at verses 7 through 9. Remember, he said that he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, verse 7, so that in the coming ages, why does God do this? Why does God unite us with Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit? Why does he do this miracle within us that we cannot do by our own power? So that in the coming ages, any age that might come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us, toward us in Christ Jesus. that verse again so that in the coming ages any age that you will face he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus and it continues he just wants to drive the home the point home for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works so that no one may boast. Look how he brings it home. He reminds us again. How has this happened? Has it happened because George is white? Has it happened because he's well-educated? Has it happened because he's a Canadian? Does it happen because he's a priest? No. By grace, I have been saved. By grace, you are saved. Saved means we were lost. By grace, you have been saved. How does this happen? Only by faith. Only by accepting only by accepting what God has completely and utterly done for you with nothing else. It isn't you have to be good until you can have faith. It isn't you have to go to church before you have faith. It does isn't you have to become successful. does isn't you have to become married. does isn't you have to have children. It doesn't have to have your sexuality dealt with or anything like that. It has nothing to do with what you have to do or what you can accomplish because you are a cut rose. And so am I. So was I. You are saved by God's action, received by faith. And to make it clear, it's not your own doing. Is it become because I've worked hard and I, it's like my wages? No, it is the gift of God. To remind us again, not a result of works. Why? So no one, no one, no one may boast. Look at me. Look how successful I am. Look at me. I can say the liturgy really well. I can sing praises well. I know Bible verses. I have things memorized. No boasting. None. It is a foolish delusion to boast before the Lord. It is wisdom to learn to humbly boast in the Lord. There is an obvious problem of proud Christians, of which I am one. One of the things for us to take from this, when we get bent out of shape because of our pride, it's all grace, it's all a gift. So it's a foolish delusion to boast about anything that I've done when the Lord is present it is wisdom to learn to humbly boast in him. It's all his doing. It's none of mine. We'll just finish the text in verse 10. Oh, by, by the way, just one other thing here. Just uh, I'm going to almost finished. You see one of the things here which is so important? This is just like a, a bit of a time thing. For a Christian... We need to get our identity from this text and not from nature. I'm not a white Christian. There's no black Christians. There's no white Christians. There's no gay Christians. There's no heterosexual Christians. If you're a Christian, your identity comes from Christ, not from your nature. I'm not a conservative Christian. You're not a liberal Christian. If you're a Christian, your identity, my identity, has to come not from nature, but from this new reality that God has won for me and given me in Christ. Just bringing it to a close. Did I put verse 10 up there? No, I haven't Let's put it up here just to to bring it to a close. How shall we then live? This is really interesting. How shall we then live? If this is all true, Does this mean that we've been raised and co-seated with Christ so we rule? So that we think we're better than others? So that we become the elite? Would Would the true best society be one where only Christians are elected so that we can have power because we are the elite? No. No. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not that we rule, but that as the gospel grabs us, as it becomes the way that we understand our identity as it becomes the place on which we stand, the air with, with which we breathe, the food with which we eat, the covering over our head, the center of our identity of who we are, it starts to push us and ground us to show compassion, to be generous, to forgive, to seek to serve, to seek the common good, to not care if we rule as we seek the common good, to be faithful in our marriages to treat people with dignity and respect and integrity. As the gospel grips us, as it grounds us, as we breathe it, as we eat it, as it surrounds us, as it covers us, as we live in it, as we see that the story of our lives is the story of the gospel, as that grounds us, then we learn to face adversity in a different way. We learn to show compassion. We learn to seek the good of our city, and the good of our workplace, and the good of the world. We learn to be generous. Just want to wrap it all up with a challenge. Here's the first one. If you are here and you have not yet given your life to Jesus, the Bible is not proposing an hypothesis. The living God is making a proposal to you this morning. He's making a proposal to you, and here's what he's proposing to you. It's a proposal. Will you let me come to you with grace and mercy? Unite you with Christ and make you alive. The Bible here isn't something that we can win debates with Dawkins or we can win debates with a Hindu or a Muslim. It's not about that. If the Bible and the gospel doesn't grip us so we have compassion and love for real people, if it just becomes debating points, we haven't actually heard it. God himself this morning, if you have not given your life to Christ, God himself is saying to you, will you let me come to you with grace and mercy? Will you let me unite you with Christ? Will you let me make you alive? For those of us who are in Christ, The Bible is not proposing an hypothesis. Jesus is asking you and he's asking me, have you forgotten that you are united to me? That you have been made alive, raised and seated with me? It's the proposition that Jesus is saying to each one of us this morning. Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten that you're united with me? Have you forgotten that you've been made alive with me? Have you forgotten that you've been raised with me? Have you forgotten that you're co-seated with me in the high heavens. Is this truth becoming your identity in the way you see the world and the way you understand who you are? Is this helping you understand your failures and your successes, your trials and your successes and your tribulations? Have you forgotten this? Please stand. Um, if you are here and you do not have not given your life to Christ, that proposal was very serious. You, that's what that's what God's word is saying to you. Not George. God's word is saying to you, and I encourage you to take the moment to ignore the rest of my words and just call out to Jesus and say, "Yes, I would like to accept that proposal. I'd like to have Jesus united with me." I would like that. I say yes. Take the time to do it. Like, just do it now. But for the rest of us. And then after you've said that prayer, you join with this. Father, thank you that that Your word isn't just so we can be clever in arguments or witty in conversation, but that, Father, uh, you make this proposal to us, that, you, that Jesus himself is asking us if we remember who we are in him and what he has done for us. And so, Father, you know how easy it is for us to forget. You know how easy it is for us to get sidetracked, and still you love us. And we thank you, Father, for this time when your word's directly speak to us. And, Father, we ask that you help us to remember and that you help us to live out of this true and real identity that has been one in history and is true for all eternity, for every age that we might face, that we might live out of this identity in Christ, knowing we are united with him, made alive, co-made alive with him, co-raised with him, and will one day see face-to-face what is now only true in in longing and hoping that we will be seated with him. That that is the final word about us. And help us, Father, to live generous, compassionate, forgiving lives, grounded in that truth. And all God's people said, Amen.